Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm your host, Beth English, and we're speaking today with Evan Bennett, Associate Professor of History at Florida Atlantic University. He is the co-editor of Beyond 40 Acres and a Mule, African-American Landowning Family Since Reconstruction, and the author of the new book, When Tobacco Was King, Families, Farm Labor, and Federal Policy in the Piedmont, published by the University Press of Florida. Okay, Evan Bennett, welcome to Working History. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So let's jump right in and talk about your book, When Tobacco Was King. The book focuses on a region of the U.S. South known as the Old Bright Belt, um, referring to the kind of, of tobacco that's, um, that's grown there. Um, can you describe for us what Bright Belt tobacco is uh, and, and where it's grown? Yeah, um, bright tobacco, you'll sometimes sometimes hear it referred to as uh, blue-cured tobacco um, because of the type of curing that it undergoes, was perfected in the mid-19th century, um, sort of in a difficult or long-term process. And sort of a happenstance process it comes about. It's different in the way that it's cured. And what sets it apart is this very bright color that, that sets in the, in the curing process. In the 19th century, it was really popular for wrapping tobacco, uh, for chewing tobacco, uh, using it for wrappers. In the 20th century, it's been the most most used ingredient in cigarettes, and that's its uh, explains its wide popularity, especially in the 20th century. Um, it's initially formulated or initially perfected in the Piedmont area of North Carolina and Virginia, right around Danville, Virginia. And in the late 19th century, the culture of growing bright tobacco spreads from sort of three counties in central North Carolina and Virginia to a larger area, sort of rectangular shape, two counties north into Virginia, two counties south into North Carolina uh, that runs uh, up into the foothills of the Appalachians and then into eastern North Carolina. And by the 1880s and 1890s, it's being grown in eastern North Carolina and then down by the early 20th century, also into south, uh, upper south, uh, eastern part of South Carolina and Georgia as well. Uh, because of the expanding tobacco market and, and demand from the uh, cigarette companies. It's popular be, lar- largely because of its nicotine content and also its relatively even burning pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a fairly light, I don't smoke, but it, they, they, from what I understand, it has a fairly light taste to it. And that's mm-hmm. what the, makes it popular for cigarettes. And so, you know, I think a lot of times when people think of, of crops in the South, cotton obviously is one that, um, you know, is sort of the first that comes to mind. So why um, in, in this area of, of Virginia and, and North Carolina that you talk about, why was it tobacco versus something else? Um, what made that a, a good match for that, you know, that part of the land? Well, part of it is it's a long historical legacy because the tobacco that's grown initially in this area is the sort of trailing end of the uh, tobacco plantations of the 17th and 18th century. They had moved into the uh, planters and had moved into the Piedmont region of Virginia by the end of the 18th century. And even though uh, tobacco isn't quite the engine it was by the early 19th century, it's still quite popular uh, and still has quite quite a strong demand. Um, In this part of North Carolina and Virginia, it's sort of right at its uh, opening development, really. I mean, that part of Virginia and North Carolina had been largely unsettled. Um, and then by the 1840s, uh, the tobacco is sort of reaching that region, and that's when exactly the moment they begin to perfect bright tobacco. Mm-hmm. Now, the 
what makes it really useful in that space or what makes it really popular in that space is sort of ironic because it's not good soil. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the, the same moment that you have you know, Mississippi and Alabama and Florida and Georgia opening up for cotton because of the rich, dark, uh, deep soils. They're le- people are leaving Virginia and North Carolina because so much of the soil seems acidic. Uh, it's not very not very good for growing uh, to cotton on, at least not compared to other regions. But that's the exact soil that this tobacco seems to do really well on. Um, and there's a number of chemical processes in the plant, and there's a lot of debate as to why that's exactly the case. But what they find is in the sort of hilly, what we would often consider infertile soil regions of of, of the Piedmont, the tobacco almost sets up perfectly for the curing process to make it into bright tobacco. Mm-hmm. And so that has a real impact, not so much prior to the Civil War, but after the Civil War, uh, because you have emancipation sort of sweeps through the area. Uh, lots of small white farmers as well, who, who traditionally had worked as tenants, now find this crop that does really well on marginal soil. And there's actually a lot of marginal soil available because there's a a process going here where lots of planters um, are finding themselves unable to to control black labor the way they had. Uh, And now they're also, in many cases, unwilling. They want to move to Richmond or they simply don't want to put the effort anymore into into maintaining the plantation. And so they begin subdividing land and land becomes more widely available. Credit becomes more widely available from uh, people selling land. And so you have a sort of revolution of small farmers buying up land and then growing relatively small crops of tobacco, maybe three to five acres, mm-hmm. ten, 10 acres at maybe the outside, uh, and then making a living from it. So what I found intriguing when I was started to, to think about the book, what I found intriguing was that we, we move uh, from what is the crop that builds pl- the plantation in North America, really, to the crop being linked to small farmers. And that has a lot to do with the, the, um, the soil and, the, and, and what, what, what land is available for growing there. If we could back up just a bit, it seems that what you're describing is that tobacco as a crop was really part of the broader plantation South. And then after the Civil War and emancipation, you have a fundamental transition in the way that it has grown. So I'm wondering if you could unpack this a bit more and talk about tobacco pre-Civil War as a regional cash crop and what the work of growing tobacco was like then. And how and why then there was a transition to a family labor system in the late 19th century that you analyze in your book? Yeah, the the plantation system in the 19th century, you know, sort of on the eve of this is really the heir of the plantation system going back two centuries. Uh, And the labor regimens really hadn't changed much. Uh, You tended to, the planters tended to focus their labor into gang labor uh, using overseers uh, working at set paces and really using the, uh, the number of using a large number of slaves in order to uh, maximize uh, production and get get as much work and as much land out of them as possible, mm-hmm. and they have to do that especially once tobacco prices in the 19th century are not on the increase anymore. So they're having to sort of intensify 
their production uh, there in the 19th century. Remembrances of slaves working in those systems remembered it as being rather quite brutal mm-hmm. uh, in that uh, if they didn't work at certain speeds, they could be, they would be whipped. They would be forced to eat uh, the tobacco. You know, children's, children as young as three and four put to work into the fields picking tobacco worms and those sorts of things. And they would, they would report that if they didn't pick all of the worms off, they'd make them eat the worms. Oh. And, uh, uh, and so they would have you, – you get a sense of the sort of mastery uh, that's, that's the idea – the planter ideal in the 18th century is still echoing into the 19th century. And planters themselves, you know, they have this sort of language of they control the crop. But what they mean by that is they control and, – and that they're knowledgeable in the crop or that they are expert in the crop. And what they mean in that is not only do they understand the work regimens, but they're really good at controlling the labor of people mm-hmm. and forcing them to do that. Uh, what begins to shift, of course, is with emancipation, maintaining those systems becomes nearly impossible. Uh, you have planters who attempt to do it uh, after emancipation. They, they uh, try to hire black workers uh, to come work in the fields, but they find black workers often very resistant to doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they they don't want that anymore, uh, and they 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 find marginal spaces to, in order to to not have to do that if they if they can, um, and the the earliest sharecrop agreements from that region of Virginia often carried with them the same burden of control or the same demands for control over people's entire lives, not just their work in the field, and and some planters even tried to put in the system of bells and and other uh, physical and corporal punishments that they would use uh and I, I, one great quote i remember reading is is uh, from i think it was from person county north carolina or someplace and it it talks about how a planter had tried to put in the system of bells and the the author of the newspaper article said that the the freed people didn't want to work under that because quote it looked too much like slavery mm-hmm. so they there's a real rejection of what's going on there what happens ultimately is planters, for whatever reason, and it's really hard to, to – I mean there's several of them I think. I think one's a generational shift. One's a sort of recognizing by – the, by the early 1870s sort of recognizing the, the reality that they can't rebuild this world. Um, they begin to uh, – it's very heated political debate uh, whether, whether they should do this. But they're increasingly forced to entrust land – to um, not only freed people, but also poor whites mm-hmm. who are who are ask, ask, asking for land, and um, increasing their willingly to, willing to do that in order to get the work done. And so you see an expansion by the 1870s of share crop agreements mm-hmm. that are not as onerous as those you see in the late and right after the, right after emancipation in the mid 1860s. Um, and what happens then is is whether they're and, and, and in the book I make a, a sort of broader argument that whether you were whether you were a sharecropper, a renter, um, you, own, you were a small owner, your life was not radically different on that scale mm-hmm. uh, in that you, most people are – they're working some sort of small plot, whether they're a sharecropper or, or even, even many landowners own a small plot. And so they don't have access to labor in the way that a planter would have once had. And so they have to begin exploiting their own family's labor. And – they do this in order to get just simply get the work done. Growing bright tobacco takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't explain the regimen so much, but it, it really the, the preparation for doing the work starts really in February uh, when you begin planting uh, a seed bed. The work intensifies through the spring, uh, and you really will, 
and then through the summer, it has to be maintained very closely. The, the uh, harvest time is, is very time in, uh, intensive. You face a really tight time crunch mm-hmm. because once you've picked it, then you've got to cure it very quickly. Uh, and then once it's cured, it has to set and then it has to be prepared for market. And these weren't brand new regimens, but now rather than having you know, a large workforce to do them, you have small families trying to do all of this. So it's very labor intensive to get this done. And so hiring labor is expensive. So most people, most families end up exploiting their own, their own kin to do this and neighbors and work swaps become a, a regular piece of this. And what I found interesting there is that as that labor regimen changes, as the work itself is now more controlled by individual farmers, whether they be freed people or poor whites or, or even middling white families, by the 1870s, 1880s, the logic and the culture of tobacco begins to shift away from that esteem that provided to the plantation that comes out of the 18th century. Now, you're, now farmers themselves begin to esteem their own work rather than their ability to control someone else's labor. You're talking then about the emergence of a different culture around the labor regimens of growing tobacco. Can you talk a little bit about what this culture was like? I see it as a unique culture in that I'm looking back on it sort of here at the end of it in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's to me why, why I found it so striking as a unique culture. What is jettisoned is a sort of plantation model. And what's adopted is a, a real defensiveness about one's status as a farmer uh, and growing up in tobacco. So you'll hear farm families in the 20th century say, well, you have to be born to it. Mm-hmm. And, and at some level, that's true, because to understand the culture, one really has to be sort of steeped in the work of it. And, and that work becomes central for the transmission of this culture. Tobacco people are farmers, but they don't necessarily see themselves as having, at least during this era, having them having a whole lot in common with other farmers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? They, they see it as their unique crop. And now part of that is a 20, late 20th century defensiveness because of tobacco uh, and its relationship with, with health and those issues. And so it actually in the 20th century becomes more magnified. So you have to sort of tease that out. But in the early 20th century, I think by the early 20th century, you have this culture that develops that people see themselves linked to this crop in ways that they, they just can't see themselves giving it up mm-hmm. to grow something else. And, and in fact, extension agents and, and others write about how this, is a, how this is a crop handed down from family, father to son to grandson, uh, how the work regimens are handed down from generation to generation. Tobacco farmers pride themselves on their ability to do these skills, and they would hold themselves out as very different from not only city people who wouldn't understand this to begin with, but other farmers as well. So they would say, well, you know, I, I can tell exactly when a crop needs to be picked. I know how to pick tobacco worms off, you know, all day, and I never miss a one. I know exactly when to top the tobacco, which is you take the flowers off of it so that the leaf, uh, the Growth is concentrated in the leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know how to sucker tobacco, which is uh, once you've done the deflowering or the topping, uh, these little ancillary buds cr- begin to grow in. And so they, I know how to snap them without hurting any of the other part of the plant. Mm-hmm. All of those little techniques become points of pride, mm-hmm. uh, really. And, um, you know, and whether one was, is a good farmer or not becomes a way of seeking status among your neighbors, right? So if your crop isn't topped right, 
uh, then your neighbors say, well, you're not as good a tobacco farmer as so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And really where this really comes to a head is at the auction. Uh, because in the auction, everybody brings their tobacco to be sold there, and it's put on public display. So everyone can see whose leaves are the prettiest and whose are the best, and the prices you get. Because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, an, it's a public auction, the prices you get are also public knowledge. So the culture that comes in around this has everything to do with people, you know, they, they're doing their work and, um, and handing that down and, and sort of internally. And I, I did an interview with a tobacco farmer, a former tobacco farmer who told me that you could tell all of the kids because all the tobacco kids, because their hands were green mm-hmm. from having done the work all mm-hmm. summer and, and they and green, so green, they couldn't get it off with the pumice soap. Right. So that was a point of pride. Uh, for them, that they stood out from their neighbors. Now, their neighbors may have looked down on them, for all we know, right? And you know, these are, you know, and we we know the sort of legends of Erskine Caldwell and tobacco farmers and all of that being dirt poor and backwards. But in their minds, they are actually fulfilling the great promise of being um, agriculturalists and uh, in, in growing a crop that makes good money. Having much more control, they feel over their over their lives through it than maybe a cotton farmer does or something mm-hmm. like that. That's very interesting. Oftentimes, one of the cultures that's talked about in Southern history is that growing out of work in textile mills and life in the textile mill villages, and they seem to sort of have a similar dynamic where you have mill workers imbuing their work and taking from it a great sense of pride, uh, both individually and on a community level. But from the outside, these workers are looked down on. Uh, They're called linheads, among other things. And so building on this, I'm wondering if you can talk about the tobacco auction and the central role that auctions played in the cultural identity among tobacco farmers. What was going to auction like and how did it create this tobacco farmer identity? Yeah. um, Of all the things that's been lost in the tobacco culture changing in the, in the last 20 years, uh, the loss of the auctions is probably the saddest. Um, They they were cultural touchstones uh, for much of that part of the South. Um, An auction, uh, the auction system really begins in Danville, Virginia uh, and it comes out of a need to see the tobacco uh, for local consumption. The way to, to the way people traditionally had done it when they shipped it to England was they packed it in hogsheads and they'd pull a little bit out and they'd sample it and see if it was any good. Mm-hmm. But you didn't want to do that for local mar- merchants because it's a lot of cost to to prize it into a hogshead. So they would lay it out, and what this allowed everybody to do is see what it was. Well, by the ni- late nineteenth century, this really becomes a per- perfected system for selling. And what it is, is, is uh, every town would have a uh, very wide open warehouse, um, initially brick. Later, they're made of sheet metal. They're not very pretty from the outside. Uh, but once you got inside, there were these vast wooden floors, and everyone showed up uh, at, for the auctions, it seemed. Uh, auctions would be set by a local board of trade as to when they would do them. Uh, once you got to the auction, the buyers were there. Uh, the buyers represented the various tobacco companies, some of them the very large uh, cigarette companies. Others are specialty buyers. Uh, some are what farmers derisively call pinhookers, and pinhookers were, were 
were essentially independent leaf dealers who would buy a lot and then try to resell it at a higher mm-hmm. price. Mm-hmm. They would rearrange it, make it look nicer and try to sell it at a higher price. And you would show up uh, and your tobacco would be offloaded off your wagon or later your truck. Instead of just putting it out willy-nilly, you would ha- have folded the tobacco or, or um, well, we'll say, we'll say folded into what are called hands and which are five or six leaves tied together into a, what looks like a knot. And then you uh, that would you would arrange those as nicely as you could because you wanted the tobacco to look good for the auctioneer. Mm-hmm. Now the auctioneer uh, and for the for the people buying, the auctioneer was the was the chief of the show. Uh, once he started moving, he moved very quickly. Um, some said they could sell 600 uh, lots an hour, so I mean, we're talking very fast move. Uh, most of the markets would limit them to about still to about 200 to 300 uh, lots per hour. So they're moving very quickly through each pile of tobacco. Um, as you're selling it, the buyers are poking at it. They're picking it up and smelling it and seeing what they like about the quality of it. There's a real mismatch uh, for farmers when they get there because they've perfect they they make it look as what they think they buyers will like. Uh, the buyers, however, looking for their own certain qualities on the tobacco. And so um, it, that creates a lot of tension between the two groups, but they're going back and forth. And the farmer really can't say anything. This isn't the sort of auction where he can you know, say, I'd like a higher price. Mm-hmm. It's simply the, 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 uh, the auctioneer is calling out the price. And when it's done, it's done. Um, if, a buy, if a farmer liked the price, he could accept it. And, or she could accept it. We'll, we'll make it clear here. Both men and women are selling on the market. Often children are even selling their own lots of tobacco on the market. Mm-hmm. Um, you, could, you could accept the bid. You would, take the, you would then go and get a cash uh, or get, go ahead and get a check right away uh, for your crop. So there's none of that waiting and, and things uh, for it. And then you could go right off. And, and most, most of the auction towns uh, had – um, a vibrant commercial scene going on during the auctions. The stores would hold sales. Um, often in the early days, men uh, men were the dominant people on the market. Would come for a couple of days, even because the the, the, the length of time to get there. So they would stay in bunkhouses, uh, and they would find ways to entertain themselves. Um, the auction for farmers. It was a real cultural meeting space. It's, you, you may see your neighbor fairly regularly, but here's where you would see other tobacco farmers. You would have a moment. You would have some time to compare yourself to them. Uh, farmers often complain, though, it's also where they felt their real distance from people who weren't tobacco farmers. Mm-hmm. So uh, they would show up to the auction. They would. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. If you look at the pictures done in the 1930s, they would show up to auction and really what were their best clothes often because this was a moment, right? This wasn't something you just showed up to, but they would get there and their, their best clothes were often overalls with a nice jacket. And here were these buyers who were very well compensated usually by the tobacco companies and they would be wearing suits and ties. And mm-hmm. so there, were, there, were, there was that sort of cultural distance that often um, uh, created some tension as well. But it really was for anybody who ever saw one, it, they really said it was a spectacle. Because and and most and there was a whole there's a whole other circuit of spectacle around it, in that auctioneers have competitions with each other as to who's the best and they would they themselves would try to play up, you know the the sale to make it look good and each of the warehouses competed with each other even though they essentially had the same thing going on and it was going to be the same set of buyers, they would compete for the farmer's business. So for for farmers, I, I what I and what I argue in the book is that the auction becomes the space where their culture. Um, gets that differentiation from other culture. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that it really becomes clear to it, that's the, while they understand through the work process that they have a unique way of life, their positioning vis-a-vis the rest of the world, right, comes to comes to bear there at the auction market. And and this is a, sort of a, a, a normative um, sort of type of framework that runs into the 1930s, which you, um, you know, again, in your book, you, you talk about is really kind of an important moment. Um, it is an important moment in a lot of different ways, but particularly for tobacco farming with the New Deal's federal tobacco program. So um, could you explain a little bit what this program was and then the changes that are that are ushered in by it and how this, um, you know, really comes to sort of transform not only the way the tobacco is farmed, but also the, the sort of culture that um, has has grown up around it. Yeah, the 30s really are the tra- are the transition moment for tobacco. And most earlier histories, uh, of course, acknowledge this. Um, uh, they, they couldn't know that the program ultimately ended in 2004. So I think we're now at this moment where we can really assess what the what that program did for the tobacco culture. In, in short term, what the, or in, in short, short framing of it, what the tobacco program did was place limits on how much tobacco could be grown in order to prop up the price. Mm-hmm. And it did that through a series of really carrots and sticks that are quite different than tobacco, than the, the agriculture programs and other commodities. Um, fundamentally, what it did was it gave each farmer an allotment or each farm and an allotment, I should say. It's not, it doesn't actually carry to the farmer. It carried to the farm that the tobacco was grown on. An allotment based on production between 1930 and 1932. And that would become the base rate or, or the sort of base allotment. And then every year, and then initially every year, and then after 1938, every three years, what they did uh, with the program was they would figure out how much tobacco was going to be needed domestically and they would figure out then how much of each person's allotment they could grow. And this, and they were coming a couple of the, you know, a couple of carrots and sticks here with it. The the carrot was if if you stayed under that allotment, you got the you got a guaranteed minimum price for your crop. And what they called parity, the crop the price was designed to give you sort of a the standard of urban working class uh, life. So it's in order to bring the the condition of tobacco farmers up. Uh, and then the, the stick for it is if you went over the production, uh, you got a 50% tax on everything you produced above that. So, I mean, there could be moments where you'd say, oh, sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and produce because I'll make the money back. But for most people, that becomes prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, the tobacco program, as I mentioned, is unique in that it has those production limits. And it's uh, quite democratic in that farmers themselves – initially every year and then ultimately three years every three years had to vote as to whether or not they would remain within those limits and they only rejected it once in, in 19, 1938 they said no we won't do it and it terrified them because the prices went crazy and they right. the, the next time they could vote it in they they in 1939 they went right back to the program and it stayed in place until 2004 um in some ways the program represented what tobacco farmers had been agitating for going back to uh, the 19th century, really uh, as early as the, the populists. Uh, what they had hoped to do was find some way to allow tobacco farmers to um, have better control over the marketing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when the American Tobacco Company comes to, to fore in, in the 1890s, they create a monopoly on the market. And farmers themselves never really have much say over what 
what their prices will be. They show up at the auction and they get what they get. Mm-hmm. So what they had tried to do several times, um, most extensively in the 1920s, was create cooperatives that would allow them to uh, hold their crop and then sell it to the, the um, uh, essentially creating a cartel of a, of a sort. It, it proves far too unwieldy to do this across you know, four states uh, and with uh, so many tobacco, so many independent small tobacco growers. And what they really complain about is they never can get any enforcement because even if you get people to agree, as they did in the cooperatives, to bring all of their crops to one place and to limit how much they would produce, you can't ever guarantee that all the farmers will do it. And so what they what they did when they created the program, and I argue, and, I, and I'm not alone in arguing this, but I argue that really there's a couple of what we think of as organic intellectuals. Um, Working uh, uh, John Hudson and 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 J. J. Con Lanier, both of whom are from the North Carolina uh, or have some experience. Uh, Hudson, excuse me, is from Kentucky, but um, uh, Lanier's from North Carolina. They sort of know what tobacco farmers want, and so they implement this sort of program that's actually very democratic. Uh, in that, initially, anybody who grows tobacco can vote in the in the in the referenda. Later, anybody with an allotment then uh, could vote in the referenda as to whether or not to accept the program. What the program does in in many ways is it freezes that family culture in place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because once, uh, whereas with, whereas with something like cotton, once the um, uh, new implements like tractors and chemicals and all those things come into play, the program is uh, expansive enough that planters can sort of shape it to how they – whatever they want to do with it in cotton. In tobacco, uh, the fact that a guy can – or a family can own a two-acre allotment has as much say as somebody with a uh, you know 10-acre allotment mm-hmm. prevents them from uh, – prevents the program from sort of riding roughshod over the smallest farmers. Now, the, the smallest farmers do get cut out. Uh, if they were renters, they often – you know, or, or sharecroppers, they couldn't get allotment. Mm-hmm. It does create a significant amount of hardship, especially in eastern North Carolina. But in the Piedmont where I'm looking, there's so many landowners, and even sharecroppers often own little pieces of land here or there. It, the The effect is not maybe quite as drastic as we often look at with these New Deal programs. The plus for these small farmers then is that the program sort of protects them from the requirement that they, you know, as, as Department of Agriculture sometimes puts it, that they get big or get out, right? That they, they, they can still continue to grow their three-acre three crop and compete. Uh, now, the problem for them is the market begins shifting. Uh, tobacco companies begin growing more overseas, and so there's more tobacco on the market. They don't have to necessarily buy from the, from the farmers anymore. Uh, and so the price of tobacco, while it remains relatively high compared to what it had been, isn't necessarily bringing the returns to individual farmers that they, that they might like. It also, because many people are, you have this massive outmigration after World War II, uh, it becomes much more difficult for families, even if they have three acres, to have enough labor from their family all year round to continue working it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they feel a significant number of pressures from that. At the same time, what, what goes on is – they initially only limited it by acreage. So as you get those new technologies that allow more pounds per acre to be grown, you sort of under, underwrite the, or undermine the program. Because whereas three acres turned out 1,000 pounds before, now three acres might turn out 3,000 pounds. 
And so the amount of tobacco coming to the market is still high. So uh, there's a number of structural problems by the 1960s that become obvious uh, that the program can't continue going like it was. What I find sort of interesting, though, is that even as they try to tweak the to tweak the program to make it work better with these new economies. The small farming ethic remains quite powerful. And the best example I've come up with with this is something called lease and transfer. What the, in the early 1960s, the federal, government, the, the federal tobacco program administrators came up with the idea, and actually Congress came up with the idea, that if you'd had an excess allotment, that is, you, you know, you, say you stopped farming, you retired, and your farm had three acres of allotment on it, you could now lease that allotment to someone else. So that allowed farmers who were interested in sort of expanding their economies of scale, it gave them the right to grow. But what they put in the program was the requirement that allotments could not cross county lines. And the reason they put that in there was there were farmers in the, in the old Bright Belt where, where allotments tended to be smaller, who were terrified that if you could lease your allotment across a county line – that big farmers in eastern North Carolina would all of a sudden come up to central North Carolina or come up to Virginia, take that allotment and move it permanent, you know, essentially permanently, even though it's only on a lease, permanently move it to eastern North Carolina, which would place small farmers in the Piedmont at a distinct dis- disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, because what would happen is the auction system worked seasonally and it started in in Georgia in August and then moved north so that by September or so you're doing the auctions in Virginia what they feared was that if those allotments moved east the tobacco companies would buy up all the tobacco they needed earlier and there would be no need there would be very little market left for these small farmers in the Piedmont mm-hmm. so what you have in the in the system is sort of an adoption of an exclusion that's there to protect these small farmers to keep it to keep the system related to these family to this family agriculture. Mm-hmm. So what I found sort of interesting and in, in what I'm the argument I make in the book is that you know what the tobacco program did was not only is it geographically froze where tobacco was grown, it also ensconced a specific model of tobacco agriculture. It, it privileged that model, one that that farmers themselves had helped to create. But the irony is, of course, that the program isn't per, it wasn't perfect. Uh, and actually undermined their positions and may put them in a in sort of a box and that they couldn't adapt very quickly because they were so fr- afraid of moving away from or adapting their system to something else. What happens in tobacco farming through the 1960s, 70s, and onward, especially with the real turn, and progressively so, um, the turn against cigarette smoking, and tobacco companies as well at this time beginning to source the crop overseas? What is the dynamic of the tobacco market as we're moving toward 2004 when this program, as you note, is effectively disbanded? Yeah. What's gone on for American farmers is it became more and more difficult to keep up. Now, they're they're facing a number of challenges that other farmers are also facing. So, you know, uh, land prices are going up. Uh, the ability to, you know, the, the need to have tractors and chemicals and the price of fuel and all of those things that affected all farmers were going up. But the, pro- the, the specific problem tobacco farmers faced was increased competition abroad. Now, that's not simply because American and, – and, well, I, mean, I should put it this way. Part of the problem of increased competition abroad was that 
increasing amount of smoking was going on abroad as well. So after 1964, of course, with the, with the Surgeon General's report, American cigarette consumption was relatively flat through the 70s and since the 80s has been dropping considerably. But in China and elsewhere, uh, cigarette consumption is, is still quite high. And so in order to source for those cigarettes, Philip Morris uh, and other tobacco companies increasingly were simply taking the technology of making bright tobacco and moving it to other countries, supporting farmers in those spaces to do it. So American farmers, in a lot of ways, feel beleaguered after the by the 1970s. Uh, not only are they sort of facing the, you know, we, we, there is that sort of larger cultural issue that, that shows its head with things like farm aid, where there's a, a lot of frustration generally in the countryside. Uh, and tobacco farmers sort of feel a double whammy and that what they feel used to be a crop that gave them a lot of pride, uh, that they could take a lot of pride in, uh, and that their towns were – that built their towns, that uh, built their institutions, essentially. Uh, a lot of those institutions in North Carolina, um, you know, they would look at company like – or they would look at a place like Duke University and say, okay, there's, you know, there's James Duke mm -hmm. the, built this from our tobacco. So it, they, they could take a lot of pride by that. By the 1970s, they feel beleaguered. They feel like everyone's against them. And at some level, that may be right. I mean, there was a, there was a significant political turn, especially in, with Jimmy Carter's appointment of uh, uh, Joseph Califano as the head of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, uh, in which he specifically said it would become the federal government's policy of pursuing you know, non-smoking or anti-smoking mm -hmm. policies. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they feel significantly beleaguered. Now, what's interesting to me here is that there's a shift that goes on in the tobacco family, as they, they like to use that term, or at least the tobacco companies like to use that term. For a long time, they didn't like the federal tobacco program. The, the tobacco companies didn't because it elevated the price they had to pay. But in the 1970s, they know how much that program means to farmers. They begin su supporting it in large part because now they, they could begin to use those farmers as a shield against anti-smoking uh, policies. Mm -hmm. And so things like the Tobacco Institute, which was the, the lobbying arm for the tobacco industry, began using farmers' pictures in their ads and, and running ads that pointed out how much, you know, how much uh, revenue tobacco farming created. And so you get this unique dynamic that goes on. However, there's a, there's a tension among farmers that's also growing. Um, some of those in the 70s who feel beleaguered feel that part of the problem is the tobacco program. That it's that it's putting shackles on them. They they can't grow. They can't you know they can't they may be stuck with ten acres or fifteen acres. They can't move to a hundred acres and try to compete with Brazilian growers or Chinese growers or, or Rhodesian growers or growers or wherever it is they're they're growing at that point. And so they begin lobbying people like Jesse Helms to get rid of the program. Now they don't do this outright because they know that that's unpopular with the mass of growers, but Helms whose philosophy of small government all sort of meets you know, very well with their goal of getting rid of the program or at least getting rid of the program as it functions, starts to, to develop. So as early as 1982, you see someone like Jesse Helms uh, showing a willingness to challenge the tobacco program, which of course it was the, in North Carolina politics and Kentucky politics and elsewhere in the tobacco South was the third rail. You didn't dare touch mm -hmm. the tobacco program. Helms, by the early 1980s, is willing to uh, make deals in order to – they keep the program in place. He, he, he's not ready – he knows he can't get rid of it, but in, in ways that uh, benefit the larger growers. And so by the early 80s, I, I argue, there's a, there's a tension among tobacco farmers, some that are 
more commercial, that are more open to becoming commercialized farmers, who are willing and, and begin to make those arguments for sort of neoliberalism, right? Remove the, the barriers on trade, remove government from any sort of function in the economy. There's a great tension between them and maybe an earlier generation of small farmers who understood what prices looked like before the New Deal, uh, who were not willing to get rid of the program. Mm -hmm. That tension remained all the way up into the 1990s. Um, the first ideas to get rid of the program were floated in the in the early in the mid 1990s, um, but they really got nowhere because and there were still enough small farmers to sort of say, well, we don't we we can't get rid of the program. We're too attached to it. Mm -hmm. They would also make the argument that there were a significant number of people who, by the 1990s, were making a living simply by having owned an allotment. And some some people said that was really unfair. How can you you know they were people living in Richmond who never even seen the land, uh, and certainly never had never farmed tobacco, but they were still getting an allotment. So there was a, a good deal of unfairness in the program, but there were still a, a significant number of widows uh, who were collecting a monthly check or an annual check based on the allotment they could rent out. And mm -hmm. so anytime mm -hmm. someone wanted to challenge the program, they said, "Well, are you going to you know let her starve?" Mm -hmm. Essentially. So finally, by 2004, and they had to sneak this in. Uh, they 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 could they couldn't even really do this in a clean up and down vote. They sneaked it into a jobs package in 2004, um, getting rid of the program. Essentially, they would undo every they would they would take out all of the infrastructure of the program, uh, which is based on several laws that dated back to the New Deal. Uh, in exchange for that, they provided 10 billion dollars over 10 years in the form of a, a, what they called the buyout. Uh, in order to to um, to pay back anybody who had an allotment, uh, and I went to one of the early meetings uh, that they had, or it was a meeting they had at right after this. It was at St. Paul's College in Virginia. The National Black Farmers Association pulled together a meeting, and essentially, you know, the federal government said, "We're not doing this program anymore. You're going to get a check for every ten every ten for the next ten years. You're going to get a check, but no more will there be any controls on the tobacco market, nor would there be any sort of guaranteed minimum prices." Uh, coming in, the auction system would essentially go away, and everybody began contracting now at the beginning of the season with either Philip Morris or R.J. Reynolds or whoever you're going to contract with. Mm -hmm. That's done now at the first part of the season, and the culture has has shifted rapidly again uh, for that. So this story that you're telling then about the dismantling of the federal tobacco program offers some historical perspective on current debates over agricultural policy, absentee landowners, subsidies, and the like. So, Evan Bennett, thank you for offering us this historical perspective and for joining us on this edition of Working History. We'll be looking forward to your next project. Great. Thank you. Evan Bennett is Associate Professor of History at Florida Atlantic University. He's the co-editor of Beyond 40 Acres and a Mule, African-American Landowning Family Since Reconstruction, and author of the new book, When Tobacco Was King, Families, Farm Labor, and Federal Policy in the Piedmont. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Visit us online and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Mm -hmm.